Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks podcast series. My name is Mahmoud Ababne, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House project at the University of Calgary. Today, we present an interview of Tenille Campbell by Mark Herman Lynch. In this interview, Tenille explains how monogamy is a limiting form of relationship and how people need multiple relationships on different levels to help them grow. The interview also explores the definition of critical polyamory as an alternative form of relationships. As a poet, she provides her insight in using multiple art forms to tell a story. Mark and Tenille also talk about the effects that the Indian Act has on the indigenous peoples when they choose their partners. Mark Herman Lynch is a mixed-race writer currently doing a PhD at the University of Calgary and presiding as the president of Filling Station magazine. Each summer, he works with the creative team at Wordsworth Youth Writing Camp to teach young writers. He resides in Mohkinsus, otherwise known as Calgary, in Treaty 7 territory, Alberta. His debut novel is Arborescent, that was published in 2020. Tenille Campbell is a Diné Métis author from English River First Nation in Northern Saskatchewan. She completed her MFA in Creative Writing from UBC and is enrolled in her PhD program at the University of Saskatchewan. Her newest poetry collection, Naidi Nahzu, is an exploration of the beautiful space that being a sensual indigenous woman creates in life, in relationships, and in land. Her inaugural poetry book, Indian Love Poems, is an award-winning collection of poetry that focuses on indigenous erotica using humor and storytelling to reclaim and explore ideas of indigenous sexuality. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi there. Uh, I'm with Tenille Campbell. Thank you so much for joining us on Tea House Podcast. I have a series of questions for you, but first, how are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I'm doing good. Just enjoying March. It snowed last night and it's nice and clean. It's not that dirty snow yet, so it's pretty. Mm. Yeah, it's 
I love it when it's just that fresh, crisp snow and everything just like the light shines off it. So everything is bright. Yeah. Yeah. Before the bitterness sets in. <laughs> before the bitterness of, of existential realism comes back to haunt you. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. So maybe I'll just jump right in with my first question. So actually, this builds off a talk that you did with Geraldine uh, King in actually February of 2022. So just uh, last month. Oh, yeah. Um, and you discussed some of your views around relationships, particularly how monogamy tied with patriarchy and men's power, and I quote, diminishes women's inherent ability to love without limit. I just thought that was such a wonderful Wonderful quote. What are some of the challenges you faced as an artist trying to dismantle romantic systems that determine a person as either single or partnered? So that binary. I think as an artist, like as a spoken word artist, I'm always very careful. Spoken word, poet, poet, whatever, storyteller. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's not define ourselves right now. But as someone who works with words, I'm always very careful um, not to... I try to be genderless unless it's very specifically about a specific person. I try and not to name the relationship. I use neutral terms like lover or partner. And there has been a few where I've talked about like threesomes or sex parties. And I try not to, again, put relationship into that because it's not about that kind of, it's not about romantic relationships so much as sexual relationship. And those are like the, the little things that I find, the more that I write, the more that I have to like go into. But it, it is hard because even now, like years into writing about desire and erotica, I still, my baseline is still one-on-one monogamous relationship. Mm. And I'm like, oh, you're so common. <laughs> Oh, you don't tell people and, that, do you? <laughs> I tell myself that. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, it's not like I want that to be my baseline of relationship or sexuality or whatever. But it's so enforced by the media around us, by the relationships around us, by religion, by TV, by books, by discourse. And it's so limiting. It's so limiting. Like Jimmy and I have talked about polyamory and poly relationships and what that would look like in a practical sense in today's society. Cause we can all say the old stories of men used to have two wives. And as long as you could provide for both of them, you know, you were fine. And it wasn't about jealousy it was about being able to provide and be take care of because mm-hmm. love is an action and cool. But what does that mean now? When we don't need men to take care of us, when we don't need partners to take care of us because we've learned to take care of ourselves, right? Like, what does a poly relationship look like then? And how do we negate jealousy? We joke about it, but like Indigenous cultures are heavily jealous and we cater to it. Oh, he's just jealous because he likes you. Mm. Um, No, he's jealous because he's fucking insecure. Uh (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a real fun person at the girl parties. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And I know, I know. And I don't know. I don't have an answer. But every time that I've kind of tried to put this discourse into reality, into relationships, into multiple relationships, Mm -hmm. it's always either been like a laughing disbelief. (laughs) Like, what? Like, you're crazy. Like, that's white people shit. And I'm like, actually, that's our shit. That's our shit. That's every culture's shit. We've all done this shit. (laughs) And like that laughing disbelief of this isn't ours. And I'm like, actually, it is. Then like that complete opposite reaction of shame and anger. 
Like I would never, I would never, like you're a whore, you're thinking that you want, am I not enough? And it's so interesting to have like these such opposite reactions. I think it just tells so much about like how our communities aren't ready for this to be this norm that we're still so influenced by these outside forces. I can go on for days. Stop me. Oh, I, no, no. I, I think it's so fascinating to think about how love is intertwined with monogamy, but polyamory is just sex. As if polyamory can't, it has to fall within the vein of just a physical fetishistic kind of object, mm-hmm. object related construct whereas monogamy naturally has love attached to it somehow like it doesn't make any sense right i know well jimmy and i had talked about the comfort level that men had or partners but men mm-hmm. have more so in lying to us about cheating rather than being honest about their needs not being fulfilled right. and i was like that's such a shit show because I know at the end of the day, like from the partners who had cheated on me, mm-hmm. it wasn't the act of cheating, it was the act of lying. And like they don't get that because for them, the physical act of us cheating on them would be the cheating and not the lying. So the way that we approach relationships, the way that we approach actual sex, like physical versus emotional, ugh, they ain't ready, peasants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Like, uh, and I, I think also a, another line from the Geraldine King interview that you said is like, let's stop fucking away, waiting around for men. <laughs> and I was like, yes, Daniil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that you quoted me. I'm like, oh, Jiffy must have said that. That sounds so <laughs> Well, the, the great part about it is that it talks, and this, this is interesting because I'm going to go into a little bit of academic language. I don't know if I like doing that that much, but actually I do. So <laughs> I love I'm going like, to us. <laughs> but I mean that relational multiplicity, right? That you can actually uh-huh. have so many relations outside of just like the romantic Western narrative structure, you know, and that there's the possibility for that. And how do you, how do you see yourself interacting with that? I think that it's already enacted. We just don't give it that fancy mm. name, right? Like, right. Because we are people of relationships. Now, if I'm being super Indian, you know, these are kinship systems that we are talking about. And just because that they're not romantic, it doesn't mean that it's not love-based. doesn't mean that it's not respect-based. And that is how we function in the society still. And it's frustrating because, you know, we've all fallen prey to this idea of there's one person out there's our soulmate. Mm -hmm. They'll fulfill our every need. They'll complete us. And that's just bullshit. That's fallacy. That's, you know, white fantasy. Right. Yeah. It's Disney. <laughs> yeah. It's... it's very Disney. Yeah. And we all grew up on it. You know, we all grew up on it. And trying to, like, dismantle this idea of the one perfect Prince Charming, the one queen, the whatever. Like, even, like, the royal hierarchy. Like, why? Like, I don't... That's not us. Yeah. And, um trying to come back to understanding that we as people change we shift Mm -hmm. our our bodies change our minds change our souls evolve and you know sometimes we are lucky to find people who will shift and change with us and compliment us for sure for sure i've seen those 50 60 year relationships they're beautiful but i'm also you know critically aware that 
women weren't often a lot of options 50 60 years ago yeah you know divorce wasn't as accessible women being able to like access their own bank accounts wasn't as yeah like let's be real we look at these like my grandparents stayed together for and i'm like because they couldn't leave uh yeah yeah (laughs) and i know uh (laughs) like i want to state that i believe in love but i have my eyes wide open people (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm so critical of it but i think we have to be i think we have to be critical of the things mm-hmm. that we love and that we want to do better. And I want relationships in our society to do better because mm-hmm. they suck right now. They yeah. absolute are trash, fight me. And <laughs> we need to do better. And this idea of understanding that multiple relationships on different levels can fulfill us. Like this is just like a duh moment. We need multiple people in our lives to love us and accept us and help us grow. And we need to love in multiple ways. Some romantically, of course, some flirtatiously. Some of my favorite relationships are with people that I can flirt with and know that they're not gonna be like, let's go make out in the bathroom. Because sometimes you just wanna feel good and loved and desired and that's it. And people have such like a hard time with it. Like, oh, you're such a flirt. I'm like, am I a flirt or do I just make people feel good? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. It's, it's a generousness and not everything, particularly with flirtation, if you think about it, not everything has to go through the gateway of sex, right? Right? Can't you just be like, hey, you look good? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And, then, and then the low moan. Mm. Yes. Mark's like, you've done that shit to me. I'm like, all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> uh, well, you're gorgeous, so. I'm like, we're gorgeous. We're gorgeous. We're gorgeous. We're gorgeous people. It just naturally happens when you flirt. It just It does. Just comes. But it makes it does. (laughs) But I think we need more of it. We need more of that lighthearted, you know, I think you're cute, but I don't want to marry you. You know, like I can accept that you are physically and emotionally beautiful, but -hmm. you're not mine. Like love is so possessive in this day and age and it's ugly. And also even just kind of thinking about this kind of compliment or flirtation, it also is a little bit of a vulnerability that a lot of people don't want to get into. It's to be to be able to compliment somebody is to be vulnerable, just to kind of like say, look, you, you are wonderful. It's kind of to put them into a place of admiration because there is a sort of possibility of rejection of that compliment. I don't know if I'd agree with the vulnerability part. I think mm. telling someone that they're wonderful it's just a fact. <laughs> and whether or not, whether or not yeah. they can accept it, yeah, that yeah. seems like a them problem and not a you problem. Wow. Okay. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Mark is like, I am being called out. Uh, I, I am writing this down. I'm taking notes. <laughs> but it's true. Some people yeah, have yeah. a very hard time with compliments. Right. And it's not about the person giving them at all. It's about... Yeah how we see ourselves, how we view ourselves, how we love ourselves, and how Mm. we allow ourselves to be loved and seen. Oh, I love that way of thinking about it. You know, especially it kind of like puts it on its head instead of like saying, no, this is something that I have to keep to myself because I'm afraid. It's Mm. actually, you know, something that like the way you're framing it is like actually a sort of a generousness of spirit of just being like, this is reality. (laughs) And we call it like it is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like... (laughs) 
We do. I do. Well, you do. I don't you... know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know as many people who are as uh, as 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 good at being honest and generous with other people as you are. And your well, poetry think... is like that as well. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't think that I do anything really amazing so much as I just speak truth and. I try and be as truthful as possible. And just walking through this world as a photographer, as someone who is trained to see, I'll say, the beauty in us. And not beauty as in beautiful, but beautiful beauty as in truth. Beauty as in not trying to hide our flaws, but rather understanding our flaws make us unique. Like beauty. I, I just think that it kind of helps me see people, see their characters, see flaws, see my own character and flaws. And, you know, write about it in a way that is accessible, that is relatable. Um, write about it in a way that we can share the laugh, yeah. but understanding like the laugh is at us and not at our partners. Yeah. Hopefully that comes through. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know, truth speaker, truth speaker, you know, in the most giving of ways, hopefully. That being and, said, we know I'm not perfect, and I'm kind of a bitch too. So, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that you should call yourself that. <laughs> I'm okay. I, like, I can have a bitchy moment. How's that? We gotta, we gotta see ourselves clearly, Mike. Yeah, you well, know. I mean, yeah, self awareness. Like, I mean, I, I, yeah, that sort of sense of frustration that can come up, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, it's interesting just kind of going back to the polyamory because I want to talk to you about your photo photography as well. But going back to this polyamory for just uh, like five mm -hmm. seconds. So I'm like, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Kim Tallbear, right? Who is out yeah. of the U of A, who discusses the decolonization of sex practices. So for her, she approaches it from an academic perspective, taking her own life as a sort of research project to employ critical polyamory, what she calls critical polyamory. And mm -hmm. that is just to provide a sort of definition for the listeners at home. Practice of polyam polyamory that entails the use of critical race theory to interrogate broader colonial and racialized structures that are embedded within monogamy. So this is one of her definitions. Uh, so how do you think about this process of decolonizing sex practices? Well, I do think Kim is brilliant. And I think approaching it as like this scientific based journey has been really interesting because I've known about her blog for a couple of years. But I also think it's maybe her way of stepping back emotionally from it, of processing it through, I'll say, science and critical thinking, as opposed to because she never tells us how she feels about it. And I think that is the hook that kind of captures me, I'll say, as like, someone very emotional based, someone very emotion driven, because like we can talk about the theories of decolonial polyamory, but what does that feel like for us? And what does the process of, I'll say, gaining new understanding and truth and awareness and self-reflection and, you know, understanding, coming to understandings of where we see sometimes unwantingly, is that a word? Yeah, sure, it's a word. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> no, it's lovely. Yeah, that's a great word. Yeah, unwantingly um, coming to realizations of how biased we are, we are, how much inner prejudice we actually do have against these sexual-based ideas and discussions that are beyond our comfort level. I think she brings it to a level that we need, for sure. We need hmm. to talk about this on all levels, including the very scientific, academic level. But that discussion is not the way that I'm going to process my decolonial love. Yeah. yeah. And so I know. You, so no, like grace to her. I love yeah. her. 
yeah, yeah. But that's just not my process. Like her, her process can inform your process, but like it doesn't need to mirror because it's- Yeah. Like, no, go ahead. You were doing brilliant. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I was, I was going to ask like, so for example, is that, so is the artistic practice the filter? Hmm. On me or her? For you. I think for me, definitely my artistic practice is the processing through poetry, the processing through photography, and, you know, in the age-old way, the process through storytelling. And I say like that in a very, I don't know, like the storytelling that happens between women and people in safe spaces, like the Saturday night adventures with the Sunday morning talks. And some people wouldn't call this storytelling, but it is fundamentally. And that's when women and people open up and they talk about it and you're like, <laughs> sorry, a bunch of my misadvice. I was like, you can't say that. <laughs> and I'm censoring myself, right? Yeah, like, yeah. even though it's you and it's me and like, we could, yeah. I'm still fucking censoring myself. Mm. But you know, you do stupid, stupid shit. And then you talk about it the next day. And it's such a, it's a place to process your emotions. Like, am I embarrassed by this? Am I ashamed of this? Did I push my own boundaries too far? Did I not push them enough? If I'm embarrassed by this, why am I embarrassed by this? You know, are my friends shocked by this? Why are they shocked by this? And it's such a beautiful sounding board and a safe sounding board of kind of coming up against your own, like I say, bias, because we all have them and they're so embedded in us and they're so comfortable to us that we don't even question them. Like, yeah, like the first time that I brought up like kink, in like a casual discussion. I just used the word kink and I wasn't even like talking about anything specific. Mm-hmm. And I think it was around my family, which might've been like the reason, but anyways, and one of my brothers was like, ew. And I'm like, have you ever had your girlfriend call you daddy? And then like they smirk and like nudge each other. I'm like, that's kink. And it's so normalized, like this yeah. hyper-masculine kink yeah. that the idea that there's this feminine kink or that's the space where feminine energy is more dominant, that yeah. they're like, minds are blown. And them. they're like, that's not kink. I'm like, that's, oh that's fascinating right i know yeah like we normalize men's fetishes like the daddy thing the mommy like call call her mommy thing Mm -hmm. like that doesn't that doesn't make us blink anymore but you know the woman that when women kind of express their own fetishes or that are women specific all of a sudden it's just like what like it's only okay if men speak it into being i don't know but that's my little that's my little thing no, that's that's a, a brilliant way of actually framing it because yeah, the the fetishes are like male centered, um, completely, and so well, the acceptable fetishes, right? The ones that mm. we no longer see as fetish uh, because they're that's so just foreplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very very fascinating. Actually, even just to move on, I I actually don't want to move on from this topic, but. <laughs> I know. Like, <laughs> this is a good topic. This is a very juicy topic. But uh, maybe so maybe we can kind of bring it back around to that. Well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. So, for example, you have a poem in uh, Naidi uh, Naizu. Is that uh, how you say that? No, but that was a good try. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but you were very good about it. Um, it's Naidi Naizu. Naidi Naizu. Okay. Yeah. So you have a, a poem called I Make Love. And then the next line, so the, the, that's the title of the poem. And then you have the next line is Under the Indian Act, My Womb, A Political Battleground. It's, um, yeah, you're just nodding your head. It's like, that's pretty good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's I was like, like, that was a good one. That was a good one. 
It's a good line. It's a good line. Uh, I like a poet who likes their own work, right? Who can really appreciate. I'm the worst person, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm like writing this. I'm like, oh, you're a genius. Yeah, Danielle. you're a damn genius, Danielle. You're a genius. Like, who needs edits? <laughs> but but it, it just like I love this poem because it's um it really really talks to that concept of how love is under all these systemic constructions, right? How mm -hmm. sex and love and even just the simple act of I make love, right, is under a huge political spectrum or political kind of foundation and tower. We, we can move on from that topic. but No, 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 no. We will talk about that a little bit because it's so yeah. important. I remember once I was up in Regina and I was giving, I was having a talk with uh, Louise Half, okay. amazing woman, like call her auntie, love her. Hmm. And um, she is married to a white man, a doctor, also an amazing guy, love him. And we were giving a talk and we we're talking about like love and relations and relationality. And <laughs> like, great discussion. It's yeah, a hard yeah. word. I'm learning it. <laughs> and uh, at one point she said, you know, being like 30, 40 years older than me, she's like, love who you want. Like underneath, we all bleed the same. They're, they are human beings. You know, love is too precious to kind of throw away just because they're a different color. And beautiful, beautiful, profound words. And I was like, mm-hmm. But. <laughs> <laughs> Put the microphone to your face. Is this on? <laughs> yeah. And like, I thanked her and it was like, great. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, we also can't be ignorant of the fact that we do live under an Indian act and who we mate with and who we have children with affects our treaty rights and that we are the only people in Canada that this happens to. Mm -hmm. So who we choose to partner and make families with is political and we have to know our rights and what we're getting into if we choose to have them with non-Indigenous people. I'm not saying don't do it and I'm not saying it's not worth it, but I'm saying know your rights. And I think that was just like, not necessarily like, I think it was just a great outline of the conflict that we live under, especially as indigenous women. Yeah. And that poem, like, although very blatant and in your face expresses how it is. Cause we've all, every indigenous woman has been through that. Like I have three brothers and two of them, like one has a girl with like one has children with a Métis child. Mm -hmm. And then my other brother has it with a Cree woman. And then I had mine with a Denny man. So they all have like different treaty levels now. And that's so messed up. And, you know, mine is, I'll say like the Denny one, but I'm like, this shouldn't be how we raise our families. Like government systems shouldn't dictate how indigenous our children are. But just because I'm offended and say it shouldn't be that way, doesn't mean that it isn't that way. And we don't have the luxury of living in ignorance about our rights. <sighs> There, you got me on my soapbox. Now step no, off. That's, <laughs> that's what this is designed to do. Get you on your soapbox because we want to hear from Daniil Campbell. <laughs> but I, I see your frustration in that. Yeah, it's because it, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's not just on a sort of, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not just on this sort of judicial level that is like, you know, distance from you. It's like literally in your bedroom. It's in our bedroom. Like, the politics are in our bedroom and in our communities because our communities enforce mm. these jurisdictions, these laws. 
and it's awful. And I remember like once I decided like mentally that I wasn't having any more kids because I'm only 38. And I know like women who do it like into their 45, especially in academia. But I was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. And I remember the relief I felt because I know that the further up in academia that I go, the less chance that is that my future partner will be indigenous because the further up we go, the more white it is. Right. Interesting. And I just remember being like relieved, being like, okay, good. Then I don't have to go through this process. If if I had another kid, that there'd be a different treaty class system than my daughter. And like, that's, that is an awful position to put women in, but every indigenous woman is there. You know, to to kind of jump off of this, uh, to Mm -hmm. kind of like move into uh, academia, you've criticized it previously um, as separating and confining and segregating, right? Um, no. I think you have even a, <laughs> I would never. <laughs> that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> uh, this is all public. It's all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, Google yourself. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not taking anything from my private conversation. It's <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you even have a poem called uh, Indigenous Academia in 90. 90- <laughs> Neitsu. Yeah, Naidi Nezu. I know because um, it looks the same. It looks like it should sound the same, but it doesn't. Language. Language. <laughs> uh, and so in, in the Indigenous Academia, that poem starts with Indigenous Academia makes me ache. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it's almost like a sort of visceral kind of toothache, right? So what do you see as the structures of academia? And you've talked a little bit about this, but that perpetuate these types of problems. And I, I, I think this is a big big question, right? But you talked a little bit about, for example, just the sort of the way in which you kind of move through that hierarchy. Uh, I don't know who said it. I'm an awful storyteller sometimes, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I, know, I know, I oh, know. But I think, I don't know. It was on Twitter. It was on Instagram. It was somebody, somebody amazing said, we have to remember that even though we're trying to decolonize indigenous space, like indigenous academia, it is still a colonial space. And no matter what we do, it's always just going to be us trying to make this space fit us. And I was just like, like light bulbs. Mm-hmm. Because so much of our, not our resistance, but so much of our problems is that, and I can only speak to my personal obvious experience, but academia isn't safe for women. Academia isn't safe for mothers. Academia isn't safe for young mothers. Academia isn't safe for BIPOC people in any sort of way. And when I say these things, I mean that we are held up and we are tokenized and we are told to be grateful to be here. And it's enraging. And the way that we walk through these worlds, again, speaking super Indian, but whatever, I am is completely different. So the way that we approach academia, the way that we approach critical understanding, the way that we approach bodies of work, the way that we approach how we fit into bodies of work that don't represent us. Mm-hmm. But then the minute that we start teaching from like a feminist point of view or an indigenous feminist point of view, heaven mm-hmm. forbid, all of a sudden all the white students are offended because it's not for them. And it's just frustrating and Like, obviously, I'm at the tail end of eight years in academia. And while there has been many highs, beautiful highs, beautiful people, beautiful conversations, Mm -hmm. uh, there has been so many lows, almost too much. And I think the problem with the lows is that they're fundamental lows. 
there are things that we cannot change. It's like the lack of funding. It's the being told to be grateful that you have enough to live off noodles. It's, (laughs) and it's the, you know, it's the laughter when you have the audacity to ask for more. And it's the being told to value yourself, but not too much. And it's the lack of support. It's that I support you until it's inconvenient. And I mean, whatever. I can say these things, like like I said, being eight years in, but also having an entire career outside of academia. You know, like someone coming in as a first or second year would never dare say this shit yeah, because yeah. their funding exists upon right? it. You know, their grades exist <laughs> yeah, upon yeah. it. And I'm like, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you're independent of the system, right? Yeah, I feel like the system, like I said, I love it. I love mm-hmm. learning. I've learned so much. If I could be a student forever and just take classes, like, but I'm not rich. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> that would be it. Because yeah. it's, uh, it's such a natural high. Yeah. And that's great. But I think once you're in the system as a professor, as a TA, as any sort of symbol, you know, all of a sudden you're the only BIPOC member on the committee. All of a sudden, you're being toted out for awards to like help present. You're on posters. You're, and that doesn't change the fact that you know, in the inner circles, in the funding boards, the big committee boards, you know, it's majority white. And it's the and like I, you know, how I talk about we're comfortable with our bias against like sexuality. They are very comfortable with their whiteness and yeah. keeping that status quo. And I'm just out of that place where I'm like, it's not our job to change these things like it's not every bad person to go in and change the system sometimes we just have to survive the system sometimes we have to make up our own system yeah and sometimes we have to burn down the system sometimes <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here folks Tenille Campbell yeah. burning down the system <laughs> I'm just saying okay, not everything is gonna be nice no. and pretty absolutely right uh, it's that uh, idea of Audrey, uh, Audrey Lord saying, right, to dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Did you have more to say on that? No. Yeah. <laughs> I want to stay in school right now. I don't want to stay in school right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do love school and I see this idea of, it's this idea that they give you crumbs and they say, you should be grateful. So it's it seems ungrateful if you kind of want more. Like they almost kind of portray you as sort of ungrateful as somebody who is like feeding off the system. If you ask for more, it's a very terrible kind of like bind that you're in because this is how they see it. And, um, yeah, let's get off that depressing topic and go into <laughs> fun, more fun topics. Right? Okay. So you, I, I love that you have this wonderful intersection as a storyteller. So if just for listeners out there, if you haven't gone to check out Tennille Campbell's blog, do so. It's TennilleCampbell.com. Uh, but there are so many amazing photo essays on your blog. Uh, one that I really love is a piece you published in the CBC called A Life Built Together. And in that mm. one, uh, you capture the grace of growing older, moving between photos of elderly couples, an essay about your family, and poetry on love. So how does this combination of art forms help you in the reclamation or even emancipation of stories and narratives? Oh, well, I think they all kind of work together very well in my mind. Before I was a photographer, I always wanted to be a writer. Writing was kind of always my extension of how I expressed myself. I still have the diaries from grade five. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, me too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, cringy, but so gold. Yeah. And it's just always been a way that I expressed and identified with. And I remember it wasn't until I went to UBC for my master's that I picked up a camera professionally mm. and was like, I'm going to be a photographer. <laughs> so cute. So naive. Yeah. And, um, I remember though, when I kind of shifted my focus from writing while in like a creative writing program to photography, I had a lot of inner turmoil about like, what am I? Am I a writer or a photographer? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. who am I if I'm not a person with a pen in my hand? And I know I was very angsty. And- <laughs> it's so lovely. <laughs> and, you know, pondering, looking out at the seawall. Mm. Um, anyway. <laughs> But it was like after discussion with my my parents who have like such low tolerance for like this self agonizing bullshit. Mm. They're very pragmatic, like pick a path, stick to it. It'll be rough, the right path. It'll all work out. Very pragmatic. (laughs) There's like me having my identity crisis. And mom is like, be both. Like, just do it. And I was like, oh my God, mom, you're a genius. What I think she was telling me was that this is all just storytelling. This is all just me processing my world. This is all me being involved in my world and I'll say a safe way and telling stories I want to tell that make me happy, that connect with me, that influence me. And it was okay to have multiple options to do that. But I had just never given myself that permission before. And then it it's just worked out so well. It's just worked out so well. And for the longest time, I did kind of keep them separate. Like there was Sweet Moon Photography. She did her own thing. She worked very hard. And then there was like Tineal, the writer over here and never did the two did meet. But over the past few years, we've definitely been working a bit more together. I'm still kind of uncomfortable with it, weirdly enough. But I'm excited about the projects that are happening with it. And how having like this layered approach allows for so much more connection with people on such different level. Like some people who like the poetry might not connect with like the imagery, but some people who like the imagery might be drawn in later by the poetry. And yeah, it's really interesting to see. One of the projects I'm working on, like is the indigenous desire project for sure. Right. And I have to finish that soon. Like it's, but COVID happened. That's right. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, the Indigenous Desire Project and what that entails? Yeah, this was a project I started, I'll say, almost a year and a half ago, two years ago now. It was about photographing 10 Indigenous men that I've desired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and desire... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, desire being like in a trickster form, desire taking all forms. So Mm. when I say desire, I mean, yes, there have been men in this project that I've slept with, but there's also been men in this project that I've never met that I'll say I've desired the image that they portrayed online, like an Instagram crush. And I picked 10 men knowing that my relationship to each of them was different. And when I pick them I was just kind of honoring that moment of desire, of acknowledging that at one point in time, like I wanted you. And it's really interesting and like humbling to call up men and be like, hey, I desire you. 
Like, <laughs> when he free, he would photograph you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I still don't know how to, like, frame this project half the time. Because on one hand, I can go in so academically and artistically. Yeah. But I feel like that kind of separates me, the me from the project. Right. And in all honesty, the project is about me and my desire. And so I have to be very honest with these men. I have to be very upfront and, oh, and the camera is naturally, I'll say a filter between the artist and the work. So I have to kind of emotionally engage. I've noticed like with the shoots that I've done already, I have to emotionally engage in ways that I don't usually do with my subjects so that I can get like that look, that connection, that moment. And it's so undescribable at sometimes because I'm like, it's not about how you look. It's not about what you're wearing. It's not about what your hair is doing. Like my desire for you is not so false that those things matter. My desire for you is based on personality and chemistry and power and connection. And these are non-physical things. And now I'm trying to capture them in a very physical way. (laughs) So I think I set the bar very high for one of my first big artistic like shows but the the discourse the discussions that's happening when these men are like contacted is hilarious because uh, <laughs> you know everybody loves being told they're desirable i've had some like two guys say no to the project and i get it because like they're one guy was like a bigger name and i was just like like i get it like and that's where like stigmas come in again right like being connected to like not necessarily my name but like a very like sexually driven like sensually driven project like this Mm. isn't your brand i get it but in the back of my head i'm like pussy Um, (laughs) (laughs) and now now it's the now it's the front of your head (laughs) yeah and also recorded on a podcast (laughs) well i don't care (laughs) i don't care no no i love it i love it (laughs) And then the other one, because this was the other critique for my men, I was like, I, I like, I can't be connected to trauma. Mm. Like, it cannot be connected. If you've heard a woman, if you've heard a partner, and and she will call you out if your picture ever comes up on this, I don't want you. And you know that limits that limits you, <laughs> mm. because I'm not saying women are perfect, but men often don't care about the things that they leave behind and one guy was literally called out for like the emotional abuse like minutes after i had like contacted him and then i wrote back right away i was like hey screenshot here sorry like i can't work with you i was like i can't have this desire based but like fundamentally joy based yeah project about indigenous men and relationships and desire feature you like you are not the highlight of our people so that has been really interesting too. You learn a lot of shit about people. <laughs> good and bad, good and bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um it's coming up on its end. I've done four out of the ten shoots. Um I have one set in Winnipeg in May. I'm trying to get one in Vancouver in July. And I'm trying to finish this up by fall. Oh, so, I cannot wait to see this. this is gonna I cannot wait. <laughs> you cannot wait until it's done. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. Because, like, we have the portraits, and I'm really excited about that, like, getting yeah. to use my photography skills. But I've written about each of these people already because right. they've been, like, in my mind, they've been in my dreams, I've desired them. So it's the mixing again of photography and poetry. Um, 
it's challenging myself. I did studio work for a lot of it and I don't do studio work. I suck at studio work, but whatever. And yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But I want it to be done. I'm ready. I'm ready to like have it be finished and go for the next project. You know, this brings me back probably to my last question because I I realized that we're running up on an hour. So, and it kind of comes back to the photography, but I'm going to go move it a little bit into the poetry realm. Uh, So you said elsewhere that your poetry comes from a place of nonfiction. So for example, I'm thinking about Indian love stories, which spawn from stories about online dating. And you talked a little bit about, yeah, these stories of the midnight escapades, so to speak. What are some of the protocols and ethics that you have about writing about people you know? Well, this was really important to me because these were so intimate. One thing that I did was make sure that I never necessarily made fun of them. A lot of like my raunchier stories where the men were like the trash didn't make it in because I didn't want that discussion. We already know that discussion. And I wanted it more to be about the learning journey that I was going on, like the mistakes that I made in trying to like, you know, have casual sex, but being like, oh shit, you have feelings. Uh (laughs) (laughs) It's a surprise. It always comes to as a surprise. Wow. (laughs) Like really good sex makes you really like a person. And I don't know, like, do I like you or do I like the sex? I don't know. And that was fun. And just like, this very self-deprecating humor, but with gentleness and love, I think. And I think people really connected to that because it wasn't about negativity so much. It was about like this shaking of your head. Like, what did we do now? <laughs> like this joyous yeah. moment. And like, I loved it. I loved it. But I made sure to never mention specifics like tattoos. My love poem to you will not mention your tattoos, Mark. Don't worry. Oh, my love poem's coming? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the little devil (laughs) fingers. (laughs) But like things like that. Like I wouldn't mention physical markers. Um, I wouldn't mention names at all, obviously. In my first book, Indian Love Poems, the only man I mentioned, ironically, was Paul C. Sequasis. Right, okay. (laughs) Because the white guy that I was on a date with was asking like these very cliche indigenous questions like, do you bead? Do you do like dream catchers? Do you make ribbon skirts? Do you dance? And I'm like, no. And I felt like such a lack of indigeneity. <laughs> because I didn't. He knows, like, shit, should I? Yeah. And I kind of snapped out of it when he asked me, like, do you know Paul C. Sequasis? Like, that's the only other native that I know. I went to school with him. And I was like, in this, like, huge city of Saskatoon, like, why would I know this guy? And at the time, I didn't know Paul. I was like, oh, like, you know, I was just at the gas station, like, down the street. And this white guy, like, blonde hair and blue eyes kind of looks like you. He, like, pumped my gas. And his, like, name said Smith. Do you know him? And he's like, well, like, no, like, why? I'm like, well, because you're both white. You must know each other. <laughs> And then, like, we just stared at each other. <laughs> <laughs> and But that was, like, the only guy that I ever mentioned. Mm. And everyone else was just anonymous or had, like, weird nicknames. And then with the second book, same protocol. Anonymous, telling stories, like, in first person. Because, you know, I feel, obviously, I have the right to tell my story and my experience. But I don't have the right to tell theirs. Mm. So I was never trying to imagine how they felt or what they were going through. Cause that's not my business, uh, right. <laughs> but how I was processing the moment was my story to tell. 
So it was kind of like that, like that ethical storytelling. And even like when I'm asked, you know, by like people like, what's your raunchiest story? I still have to really filter because too much information, right? It's too much information. And like, sometimes the raunchiest stories are the most effed up. (laughs) And I was like, this might not be my crowd for that. (laughs) (laughs) What, the the poetry community? I thought that was a perfect crowd for that. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. I've told stories like in private that have not made it to books and probably never will. And you really see who people are with how they react to these kind of stories. Because there are stuff that I've done that I am like, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> like my cheeks burn. And it takes yeah. a lot for my cheeks to burn. But like when I tell the story, it's still a learning experience. Like I tried it. I obviously didn't like it. I won't do it again, but it's still a good story. But people, you learn pretty quick who you can tell these kind of stories to and who you can't. And like you learn who your community is. The good old days. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of like... Uh gives a callback to what we talked about at the very beginning about that idea of the capacity to tell a story is the process of decolonization, that decolonization Mm. of particularly sex that you you spoke so eloquently about uh, at the very beginning. So like, yeah, this is, yeah, we've gone full circle. It's really, really wonderful. Yeah. Look at us all traditional and shit. Wow. A traditional <laughs> podcast from Tea House. All right. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Yeah. My face hurts from laughing so much. Aw. <laughs> but I feel like that's always our hangout. Like, yeah. stop being so funny, Mike. <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much for doing this uh, with us. This no, is, thank like, you for having absolutely- me. Hope you enjoyed this interview of Tennille Campbell by Mark Herman Lynch. I am Mahmoud Ababni and you are listening to Tea House Talks. You recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and the Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai. Shuyunyu, Rebecca Gillane, Micah Jacobson, Shazia Hafiz, Mark Herman Lynch, Ryan Stern, and me, Mahmoud Ababne. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tia House Talks. For more on the works of Tia House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you would like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.